0: Okay, I want to tell you now about the autonomic nervous system. In uh, chapter two, chapter two covers some things about the organization of the nervous system overall um, and uh, hopefully you found that um, to be familiar and a bit of review from other psychology classes. I know that that's a topic uh, that you would have studied in general psychology. Um, Let's see, if you're following in my slides um, I have this as slide number 11, but there's a diagram um, similar, I think, in your textbook of the overall organization of the nervous system. Uh, it's essentially in a, I don't know, I want, um, maybe flow chart sort of format. The nervous system being broken down into the central and peripheral nervous system. The central nervous system is broken down into the brain and spinal cord. The peripheral nervous system, broken down into autonomic and somatic nervous systems and the part that I want to tell you about in this podcast is the autonomic nervous system okay Um, because this is going to come up um, in a few different contexts uh, for this course, particularly with things related to anything having to do with anxiety or arousal, um, including anger to some extent, uh, but anything like panic attacks or fear responses or anything like that, and also some things related to sexual arousal uh, and, um, and problems of sexual arousal, which we'll talk about later on too. Okay, so to go to the level of the peripheral nervous system first, um, peripheral is uh, means toward the outside or toward the edge, right? So the peripheral nervous system is all of the nerves in the body that are outside of the brain and spinal cord. Um, notice that the peripheral nervous system is going to have to carry information into the central nervous system and out from the central nervous system, right? So information is going to go two different ways. If you remember about how uh, neurons, individual neurons, carry information, though, individual neurons can only carry information in one direction. So in the peripheral nervous system, we've got to have separate nerve tracks or even nerves uh, for carrying information in two different ways. Generally speaking, that information that goes from the um, goes into the brain is going to be referred to as sensory information, right? It's going to be information that comes from sensory systems, whether that be rods and cones in your eyes or muscle uh, tension receptors uh, that tell about position of your um, uh, body in space or, you know, whatever kind of uh, sensory information. Uh, um Uh, I'm sorry, nerves and nerve tracts that carry information away from the central nervous system, essentially to the body, uh, are generally going to be referred to as motor neurons, in that they're going to be sending information to parts of the body to tell them or direct them to do things, including... Uh, contracting muscles, but also including speeding up or slowing down activity of particular organ systems or releasing hormones or a lot of other stuff like that, right? So um, input information, generally speaking, is sensory information. Output information from the central nervous system is going to be motor information. Peripheral nervous system handles both uh, sensory and motor information. Now, the, um, the two branches of the peripheral nervous system are somatic and autonomic, Somatic is the one I'm not really going to talk about in this podcast. Um, In a sense, that's easier. Uh, The somatic nervous system carries information that we are or can be consciously aware of. But remember that that information is going to be sensory and also motor information um, that we are aware of. uh, When we deliberately decide to move parts of our body or we're aware of sensation coming from a certain part of our body, somatic nervous system handles that. On the other hand, the other branch of the peripheral nervous system is the one I want to tell you more about now, and that's the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system carries information, both sensory and motor information, again, um, but, uh, but generally speaking, that's information that we're not consciously aware of, or we probably couldn't be consciously aware of even if we wanted to. Sometimes um, teachers will tell you that um, the that autonomic means automatic. It doesn't really mean automatic. Autonomic means independent. And actually, I think that works better for remembering it anyway. Because um, you know, if you're working. Uh, autonomously you're working on your own independently, right and that's what the autonomic nervous system does it works without us having to willfully or consciously tell it to do certain things it's, um, it's controlling a lot of things but it's doing it kind of behind the scenes right now your brain is controlling your rate of respiration uh, your um, uh, your blood pressure uh, your um, <coughs> rate of digestion Um, uh, your core body temperature, a lot of things like that, that your brain is controlling, but you don't have to be consciously aware of it at any given moment, right? That's all handled by way of the autonomic nervous system, so it's being handled independently without conscious awareness. Now, since that's going to be controlling a lot of different things uh, within the body, Uh, the autonomic nervous system essentially needs a way to increase activity and a way to decrease activity of these body systems. And that's what the two branches of the autonomic nervous system uh, do. And that's the distinction or the differentiation between those two. So the autonomic nervous system is separated into the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. Now, let me be clear here. This is not just a separation on paper. <laughs> uh, this is a real separation as far as the, um, the organization of nerves. There are nerves and nerve tracts that their only job is to carry sympathetic, um, that they are sympathetic nerves, essentially, and they carry information um, uh, regarding certain kinds of things. There are others that are purely parasympathetic, right? They're carrying information, um, and they're dedicated to doing that and only that. So this is a physical distinction, an anatomical distinction, not just one that somebody came up with based upon their jobs right Uh, they actually are separate um, uh, structures but generally speaking the sympathetic nervous system is going to be the activating um, branch of the autonomic nervous system and the parasympathetic generally speaking is going to be the uh, deactivating or relaxing uh, aspect of this autonomic nervous system so I think it's fair to think of the sympathetic nervous system as a dimmer up switch so that if you need to increase intensity uh, or activity of um, internal systems, like we need to increase your rate of respiration or increase your rate of uh, your core body temperature or increase um, uh, general muscle tone, um, that's generally going to be held by the sympathetic nervous system to increase activity up dimmer switch. If, on the other hand, the brain needs to turn down activity in some areas, like we need to slow down some of those things or relax them, then that's going to be handled by the parasympathetic nervous system. Now, you notice I have to say generally speaking, because there are some significant and important exceptions to this, um, uh, as far as activating and deactivating. However, um, I think that the best way to keep these straight in your mind is to associate sympathetic nervous system activity with a fight-or-flight reflex or -or fight-or-flight response. When we get a fight-or-flight response um, that's going to be handled by the sympathetic nervous system and it's going to activate a lot of different systems um, in sympathy with one another, all kind of acting fairly quickly. So I hope you're familiar with um, fight-or-flight response. Fight-or-flight response is is a complex reflex. Essentially the brain interprets, there's an interpretation here, interprets that we're in immediate danger and that kicks off a reflex where a lot of things happen very quickly in order to, for your body to defend itself. Most of these are going to be activating things, including uh, your, I don't know, your pupils dilate. They get bigger in order to take in more information. Uh, overall muscle tone is going to increase so that you're ready for action. Uh, breathing rate is going to increase. Heart rate is going to increase. You might start to perspire. Um, uh, hair is going to stand up on end. Um, you know, for, for humans, we are liable to experience that as goosebumps. Uh, for other kind of mammals like dogs. Uh, If you've ever seen a dog uh, with their hackles up, right, it makes them look more big and fierce. And that's part of that fight-or-flight response. Anyway, there's a lot of stuff that happens in this fight-or-flight response. Um, Actually, let me go further, because some of these other things are important. In that fight-or-flight response, your immune system uh, is activated. Your immune system is there to protect you against microscopic invaders, (laughs) microorganisms. And yet, even if there's a fight-or-flight response, like a tiger steps out from behind a tree and you have a fight-or-flight response, your immune system responds to be ready just in case it's needed. In that fight-or-flight response, clotting factor is going to be released into your bloodstream so that if you get cut in this emergency um, situation, then you're less likely to bleed out or you're going to clot more quickly uh, and recover from that. Right. So there's a lot happening in this fight-or-flight response, and it's all mediated by the sympathetic nervous system. Most of it is activating. This is where the, the uh, exceptions come in. One thing that you don't need to be doing while you have a tiger there in front of you and there's an immediate emergency is uh, to digest your food. You don't need to have body resources Um, uh, all tied up in digestion, digestive process. And so one of the exceptions to the fight or flight response being activating and sympathetic nervous system being activating is digestion. Digestion actually slows down with sympathetic nervous system activity. Now, um, uh, and so that can be shut off or turned down at least for a while until the danger goes away, then it can pick up again. The other thing that doesn't need to be happening then is sexual arousal. Sexual arousal doesn't happen with sympathetic nervous system. It doesn't happen with a fight or flight response. It doesn't happen when there's a tiger that steps out from behind a tree. That's not the time. Um, Sexual arousal is going to be mediated by the other part of of the autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system, right? That's going to have important implications for sexual functioning that we'll talk about later on. But the way the system seems to be designed, though, is that for these two parts, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic, to operate complementary. Um, When there's an immediate danger, the sympathetic nervous system kicks in to activate body systems necessary for fight or flight. Once that danger is gone, I've managed to scare away that scary tiger. (laughs) good on me, Um, then the parasympathetic nervous system kicks in. It activates, and what it does is it turns down activity of all those systems to bring it back to normal. So we've got an activating branch and a deactivating branch. This, again, is the way that the system seems to be designed to work, uh, that we can match the level of activation to the needs at the time. However, what we find is that This fight-or-flight response can happen in response to a lot of different kinds of threats. If we perceive threat in terms of a tiger stepping out from behind a tree, yes, we're probably going to have a fight-or-flight response. But you know what? As humans, we perceive a lot of other kinds of threats, too. If you are in a job interview, that's a threatening situation, and if you see that as a threatening or dangerous or risky situation, uh, and it um, raises your fear or anxiety, you're liable to have fight or flight kinds of symptoms. If you're meeting your girlfriend's parents for the first time, and this is anxiety producing, you're liable to have that fight or flight response. If you're giving a speech to a crowd of people or something like that, you're liable to have this. So essentially what we're talking about here is that people can be in a state of where they are anxious or even chronically anxious or stressed to where they have kind of long-term sympathetic nervous system arousal or activation without their body ever really getting the chance to go to that parasympathetic relaxation um, counter response, right? And this is the root of a lot of stress-related illnesses. For, let me give you two important examples. One of them I already mentioned to you that, um, that the immune system is activated with a fight or flight response right well if you're chronically nervous chronically anxious chronically stressed then that that immune system is going to be activated and, activated and activated and activated and activated and activated and after a while it's going to start to shut down and so you're essentially going to be immune suppressed in a sense your immune system is going to be weakened then when a cold or flu germ comes along then that cold or flu germ is going to be much more likely to be able to um, get a toehold and, and cause an infection where you actively get sick. I mean, when you're uh, when you're healthy and not particularly stressed, you know, you probably run into cold and flu viruses a lot, your immune system fights them off and you never even have to be aware of it. But this is one of the primary links between stress and illness, that illnesses, even communicable illnesses, like viruses and um, uh, bacteria, were more likely to get infections Uh, when we're under periods of stress, like exam week and stuff like that, right? Another one, the second uh, primary link here, the second important link between stress and health related to this is, remember I told you that during a fight-or-flight response, clotting factor is released in your blood. Well, that makes sense in a fight-or-flight kind of situation. But consider instead if you are chronically stressed and chronically anxious, that that clotting factor is going to be continually released in your blood, and there's no need for it. There's nothing for it to go and clot. It's likely to clot something. Blood clots within the system are a bad thing, right? Those blood clots can, um, uh, can, uh, uh, to some extent, block uh, passage of blood. They can close things down. Those blood clots can become loose and flow through the system. Uh, if a blood clot flows through the, through, um, uh, Uh, an artery and it makes its way to the heart and gets stuck in coronary arteries, that's what we call a heart attack, right? That's a bad thing. Uh, If it goes to the brain and it blocks off blood flow in parts of the brain, that's one way that a stroke can happen. There's a few others, but that's one way uh, that a person can have a stroke, right? So, uh, So having this excess clotting within the system is another, there's another one of those links between chronic stress and illness, right? So um, this is why relaxation seems to be an important part, uh, using relaxation techniques and other things like that, uh, in counteracting some stress-related illnesses and anxiety-related effects. So not just physical illnesses, but also anxiety, um, uh, even trauma-related illnesses, uh, problems with anger, a lot of other things that we'll talk about throughout the semester. Um, Now... One more thing on this is that um, this is also why uh, breathing techniques uh, are often used as a way of re- uh, of teaching people how to relax. Almost any kind of relaxation technique is going to involve something to do is often going to involve something to do with paying attention to and changing some aspect of your own breathing. <laughs> now, um, uh, in psychotherapy, people often learn ways of breathing. Now, if um if your friend goes to their therapist and you say, oh, odd things go to your therapist, and you're like, ah, oh, pretty good, we practice breathing. A lot of people will hear that and say, oh, it sounds kinda dumb. <laughs> you practice breathing, but but what they may not realize is that um breathing and consciously changing aspects about our breathing allows us to directly affect uh, some of those aspects of the autonomic nervous system that we otherwise don't have direct control over. Remember, the autonomic nervous system is independent of our conscious action. But breathing is one system that is controlled by both the autonomic nervous system and the somatic nervous system. And very important implications of that are that breathing is something that happens autonomically. <laughs> that is, um, we don't have to uh, concentrate to breathe, which is good, because that would get kind of tiring. Um, Uh, However, we can consciously control breathing. We can hold our breath, we can speed up our breathing, we can take deep breaths, and so it has both autonomic and somatic control over breathing. So, since we can willfully control aspects of our breathing, that's essentially our foot in the door to be able to uh, control all these other aspects of the autonomic nervous system which really otherwise wouldn't be under our control. You see, the reason the sympathetic nervous system is called sympathetic is that all of the things that it controls, it controls uh, in close sympathy with one another. That is, um, uh, when a person has a fight-or-flight response, they don't usually have just one part of it. Uh, All those things kind of happen together. Uh, You know, you get an increase in heart rate, you get an increase in sweating, uh, you get an increase in muscle tone. All those things are controlled tightly together in sympathy with one another. So that means if we can control one of them, breathing, then we can control the others. And um, and so by deliberately changing some aspects of breathing, this is where people can gain control over those stress responses, anxiety responses, fear responses, anger responses, um, and a lot of things that many people just sort of assume aren't under their control. Right. So this is why breathing is an important thing uh, uh, to learn and practice, uh, often in, um, in treatment for a lot of those kinds of things. And this is essentially what I'm showing you here is the um, uh, neurophysiological basis for that. Right. Now, uh, one thing to know about that, though, is that um, uh, what the brain seems to monitor with regard to breathing uh, is not so much how deep you're breathing, but the rate of your breathing. Okay. So in, uh, in trying to relax, sometimes people will say, oh, we'll take a deep breath. Well, deep breathing can be hard, uh, especially when you're very anxious or angry or, you know, panicky or something like that. Uh, and essentially what the brain is actually paying attention to is not how deep you're breathing, but how quickly you're breathing. Many times when people are stressed or whatever or fearful, they're going to start to breathe more quick and shallow. And that's part of that fight or flight response, right? Preparing for action, they're breathing more quickly and shallow, and the brain pays attention to that and realizes, okay, we need to kick off the rest of this fight or flight response. So what we want to do in in relaxation is deliberately slow down breathing. There are a few different ways of doing this, um, but um, but one way that um, uh, that uh, is very easy. For folks to learn and practice is something called pursed lip breathing uh, so where essentially all you do is when you exhale you purse your lips sort of like you're whistling you know not quite that tight but um but so you're breathing out through a smaller constricted space and what that does is that means it takes longer for you to exhale so there's you know nothing to really concentrate on here all you got to do is purse your lips and exhale That's going to slow down your exhalation. Um, that's also going to slow down your overall rate of breathing, and can um, uh, bring on some of that relaxation response. Now, you know there are a lot more uh, ways to do this, but that's one that um, that I can often teach people fairly quickly, and that they can often start to use. Um, there are many kinds of relaxation techniques that involve breathing, and and for you know personally for my taste, some of them get to be rather intense and uh, complicated i mean there are actually some in yoga where you breathe in through one nostril and out through the other i'm not even sure i could do that but um you know and uh, all this sort of stuff but um but the end result is that what you're doing is slowing down your overall respiratory rate and that's where you gain control of those body systems that most people don't think they have control over Um, people can learn to lower their blood pressure, uh, to shift patterns of blood flow throughout their body, um, uh, uh, to slow down their respiratory rate, uh, slow down a lot of other things that they don't think that they... Uh, slow down their heart rate uh, that they often don't think that they normally have control over. So again, we're going to come back to that when it comes to interventions for particularly things having to do with um, stress stress and anxiety and also uh, sexual functioning and stuff later on. Okay. Autonomic nervous system.